Olympic champions generally hate to lose, and this drives them in a way that forces them to overcome adversity. It allows them to become innovative and creative, um, and uh, it, it makes the sacrifices necessary to be successful easy to pay. It's not easy to swim 10 miles a day, but it's a lot easier when you know why you're doing it and you believe in the why. So the, the willingness to d delay gratification, the willingness to endure pain, the willingness to triumph over adversity, those are abilities that guarantee success in the real world where you're a doctor, a lawyer, an insurance salesman, or a teacher. Whatever it is you want to do, the skills you learn as an athlete can transcend and, and transform you to become a gold medalist in life. You just heard from our next guest, former swimmer and four-time Olympic gold medalist, John Neighbor. I'm John Moffat, and welcome to my podcast, Sports Life Balance. Since the 1976 Games, John has been a TV sports commentator, motivational speaker, author, and resident Olympic and Paralympic scholar. And standing six foot six, he has literally been a giant within the Olympic and Paralympic movement for decades. John is the former president of the United States Olympians and Paralympians Association, sits at the helm of several sports foundations, and late in 2020, he was elected to the board of directors for the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee. Before we get to our visit though, I'll leave you with an amazing fact. At the peak of his career, John set all of his world records and earned each of his four gold medals in a single month, proving that the Olympics can forever transform the trajectory of an athlete's life. So John, thank you so much for making yourself available um, to give us some insight about how you've gone from being one of the most iconic Olympic athletes in history to enjoying a very well-lived life. Wow, iconic. That's a big word. <laughs> well, it's true. You know, I mean, look, I really look forward to hearing a little bit more about some of your personal reflections about your life as an athlete and how sports created the John Neighbor you are today. Well, there's lots of stories involved. I will tell you this, before athletics, the John neighbor I was was probably not somebody you'd care to get to know. I wasn't evil. I was just um, innocuous. I just uh, the kid sat in the back of the class, didn't say a word, was teased for walking funny, and you know I just I didn't have a uh, an identity. I was raised in Europe for seven years. Dad was a management consultant, and me and my three siblings and mom and dad went to live in Italy for four years, England for three, and I was the outsider. I was the American in Italy. I was the, the Yank in England, and I came back to California in time to enroll in seventh grade, and I had the British accent, and I had the funny look. I never played baseball or softball. I couldn't handle a ball, a basketball, a football, or, or a baseball to save my life. On the first day of high school PE, because I am so tall, I was picked first for the basketball team. On the second day of high school PE, I was the last kid picked for the basketball team. That's just how horrible I was as an athlete. Mom said if I'd uh, I'd trip over a chalk line on the pavement, basically uncoordinated. I'm not a land mammal. I'm not a land mammal. But I befriended a kid in algebra class who was a silver medalist at the Junior Olympics, and his name appeared in the local newspaper as the second fastest 13-year-old backstroker in the country. And that, to me, was a celebrity. And I befriended him, and I sorted hand, sorted, started hanging around with him. And then he ran through the locker room and jumped in the pool on the first day of the swimming season, and I ran through the locker room and jumped in the pool too. 
And that was my introduction to the sport of swimming. Why was, why was this, um, what he was doing of interest to you as the gangly, uncoordinated preteen that you were? I, I should note that when I was 10, living in Europe, we did summer vacations. And my dad took us on a Mediterranean cruise. And when I was 10, we visited Olympia, Greece, the site of the ancient Olympic Games. And the tour guide was so convincing, he talked about the, the Hall of Shame, where uh, athletes who were caught cheating in the ancient Olympics would have a statue in their likeness carved and paid for by their hometown. And they were so shamed by this that their life was literally ruined. And uh, I, I felt, here's a, here's a sports organization that's all about sportsmanship and fair play. And I said to my mom, I want to be an Olympian someday. And she looked at me and she said, really, what, what sport? And I said, I don't know, and I don't care. I want to be an Olympian. So that's when I met Jeff in algebra class, and he was a swimmer, and I knew swimming was an Olympic sport that had an immediate appeal to me. And after the first day of swimming, um, I wasn't very good, but I knew that I could get better. I knew this was a sport that I could learn and eventually master. Uh, I told my mom that very day I came home, and my lower left lip was the only part of my body that did not get a cramp. But the next day I went back and had a good time, and my times, I, I felt my repeats were getting better. Uh, the first swim meet I ever swam, uh, I should say the second swim meet I ever swam, I did the time in the 200 free that was five seconds faster than the week before. And so I said, gee whiz, if I stay in this sport for 10, second, 10 weeks, I'll break the world record at this pace of... Wait, so you were, really, you were really analyzing swimming, the times and all that yeah. already at that young age? Yeah, I, well, young age, I was a high school, or almost a high schooler, I guess, um, yeah, I was thinking statistically. You know, I it, I know that the, the, the improvement progress is a hyperbolic curve. It's not linear. But at the time, I got five seconds faster in a week. Ten weeks later, I'll be 50 seconds faster. That ought to be pretty good. <laughs> well, it didn't work out that way. It wasn't quite that fast. But I got the most improved award that year and the two years that followed. I just kept getting better. Wow. So, so in, in a way, I mean, it's almost like um, you might have been destined for swimming. Did swimming somehow pick you, or have I, you thought about that? I think my body is ideally suited for the sport. Big lungs, uh, big hands, floppy ankles, loose joints, very limber and flexible. How tall were you at this point? Oh, gosh. High school freshman, probably six feet. Mom once said that my freshman year of high school, she could almost hear me grow at night. You know, <laughs> stretching out. Uh, I think I grew five inches in one summer. Um, so I was tall and lean. Um, it's, not that, it's not that swimming was ideal for me. It's that everything else was horrible. I was so bad at every other sport that swimming was the only place that would take me. So by default. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> Yeah, it worked out. Well, um, at some point, um, I guess it would be in high school, you began to be successful. Um, what what sort of what sort of uh, what, what sort of process did your mind go through? What kind of thoughts did you start going through when you started realizing that you were successful and maybe had potential? Well, for the first two or three years, I measured my progress basically on the on the results of a stopwatch. It didn't matter to me that I'd lose a race or win a race. What mattered to me was how much faster was I getting. Before the days of electronic spreadsheets, my dad being the management consultant, he created one on a piece of paper. And the column headings were the events on the program, 100 back, 200 back, 100 free, 200 free, 500 free. You know, all the events across the top, and then down the left margin, we had the different 
meets in which I would enter. It would be the Menlo Atherton dual meet. It would be the, the, the conference championships or whatever. And we would en- enter the best time I did that weekend in that particular box. So this is Northern California. Northern California okay. in high school. Um, and, and every time I did a personal best, meaning it was the fastest time in the column, we would circle it in a felt tip pen. Mm. And it was the percentage of circles to entries that was, that was my reward. So dad, at the end of a, a, a meet, I'd come home and dad didn't say, how'd you finish? He'd say, what were your times? And we would enter those together mm-hmm. in the clock. And so it got me really focused on results rather than comparisons. And I think that, that enabled me to focus that every meet mattered, every week was significant, and I didn't have to be fantasizing about Olympics at that time. I was really focused on a week-by-week basis, and every meet I wanted to get a little bit better. In 1972, it would be my junior year in high school. By then, I was one of the better swimmers on the team. In fact, I probably was the best swimmer on the team. And uh, from that point of view, I started, and here I'm a little embarrassed to admit it, uh, I was the upperclassman yelling at the freshmen to put in the lane lines. And I would be bouncing on the diving board like a trampoline, you know, having fun and making all the young kids do all the work. And at that moment, the, the swim coach came off the deck out of his office, and he said, neighbor, get off the diving board. And I looked in front of the diving board, and the swimming lane line had already been installed. They'd ratcheted the thing tight, and I knew that if I dove on it, I might hurt myself, so I aimed off to the side. And on a single bounce, a side movement is easy. I, I would have landed in the lane, lane one. But because I had been bouncing on the board seven times, I had loaded it with so much spring that I literally missed the water. I landed on the deck, pool, oh my uh, gosh. And, and, the, and the gutter, the, 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 the corner of the pool deck, cracked my collarbone. Eesh. It put a dimple in my cheek, and it put me out of the sport for, this, for the entire junior year season. You're kidding me. I did not swim a single high school meet in my junior year, which is the highly recruited year. That's when the college coaches start to follow who's, who's worthwhile. Wow. I got back in the water in July just in time to barely qualify for the Olympic trials of 72. Okay. And I did compete in Portage Park, Illinois. When Mark Spitz qualified for seven events, I, I tried to qualify for one. And I actually got pretty close. I was six-tenths of a second off. I, I got fifth, and they took three. And so I didn't go to the Olympics, but I watched them voraciously on television. And Spitz, of course, stole the show. And then in my events... Roland Mathis from East Germany defended his Olympic title in both backstrokes. He became, he'd been my hero for a long time, but he solidified his role. And so at that point, having not made the 72 team, I at that point committed myself to uh, a focused, disciplined, uh, sacrificial training for four years. I wasn't I wasn't willing to to do anything less than my best for four consecutive years because I really wanted to be an Olympian in '76. Well, I mean, there there is a there is a point in every Olympian and Paralympian's uh, career where they realize that they could possibly make it to the big show, and so it sounds like that happened somewhere uh, around the time. Bef- you know, perhaps it was the Olympic trials. Until I finished fifth in the '72 trials, I did not think that 72 was even a, a, an outside chance to make that Olympic team. So when I got hurt in March of 72, I didn't feel like I'd lost an Olympic berth. I felt I'd lost my junior season in high school, and I'd rebound as a senior. So I didn't realize the extent of what might have happened. And in retrospect, I think it was the best thing that could have happened 
because had I made the 72 team, I might have won a bronze medal, and that might have been enough. But Mm. because I got close and was denied, it really uh, stoked my furnace for four more years. And I think I did a lot better in 76 than I could, than I ever would have done in 72, but maybe better than I would have done in 76 had I been successful in 72. So in looking back, I look at that huge disappointment as a blessing. Wow. Yeah. I mean, uh, we we all know a lot of uh, Olympians and Olympic stories from the games where people were inspired by themselves coming up short. Mm-hmm. Sure. And so that makes total sense. I mean, it, it just makes sense in, in for everybody understands well, that. Well, I, I believe that sport is supposed to teach us how to deal with failure. You, 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 that's where you learn perseverance and tenacity. And those are the skills that are valuable in life, not coasting to an easy success and, and, and having a lot of Twitter followers. That doesn't teach you anything. <laughs> But dealing with adversity does. Right. And so when it happens, we regret it. But when we look back, we can say, you know what? That adversity is what made me what I am. I, I, I agree wholeheartedly as an athlete who, who had to experience a great deal of adversity. Um, well, we'll go back to that a little bit later. Um, but um, you, So you, you, you completed your senior year in high school. You obviously were quite the big fish in the pool. You already mentioned that. Um, as a Northern California boy, what made you uh, go to SC, USC? That sure, is. yeah, Southern Cal. Um, I because I had lost my junior year of swimming in high school. Most of the colleges throughout the country were unaware of my potential until I placed high at the Olympic trials and I actually won my first national championship swim. My senior year, I went to the indoor nationals and I won both backstrokes. So that would have been like April of your senior year. That's then. correct. Okay, that's correct. So all of a so sudden, so that's April of '73. Yes. Okay. And all of a sudden, every college in America wanted to offer me a scholarship. But by that time, I had pretty well decided I don't want to be. I don't want to be traveling. I don't want to be recruited outside of California. There were only four swimming schools in California at the time. Cal, not so much. Stanford, very close and nearby. USC and UCLA down in Los Angeles. Well, that year, Stanford's students burnt down their own library. And I said, well, I don't want to go to a place that's that radical. Why would you want to go to Stanford? I mean, come on. Well, the, the other reason the other the reason Stanford did have a good program, and they right. had, and had some great athletes and a few Olympic champions. But also, I imagined that every weekend I'd come home and have mom do my laundry. And I didn't see that as being helpful in my maturing process. So I, I ruled them out. I did uh, go to USC and UCLA recruiting trips. Uh, USC recruited me on the basis of my transcripts. They thought that I was a very smart academic kind of guy, a student body president. He's going to be very, you know, um, uh, doctoral thesis oriented. And so the professors they introduced me to were very droll and dry. And the experience wasn't that much fun. Uh, at UCLA, however, many of my high school upperclassmen had graduated ahead of me. They had gone to UCLA. And so uh, they greeted me as a returning hero, and they showed me some good times, partying on the row. We went to see a Sean and Ah concert, and I came home saying, wow, UCLA is going to be fun. I can't wait to go to UCLA. And I announced my intention to be a Bruin. Wow. It was in the newspapers, but it occurred two weeks before the letters of intent were allowed to go out. So I couldn't sign anything. Mm-hmm. Well, in that two-week period, uh, I went to the NC2A, I went to the Nationals, won my backstrokes, and USC made another run at me. 
Steve Furness was the team captain, and um, his arguments were convincing. But more than that, uh, he pushed me from pro-UCLA back into the willing-to-consider-both-alternatives camp. And at that point, I asked my dad for advice. And he actually said, well, John, what would it cost us to send you to UCLA without a scholarship? At the time, it was $7,500 or something. He said, what would it cost us to send you to USC if you didn't get a scholarship? I said, I think it was like $23,000. He said, why do you suppose there's that difference? And he made me think Mm -hmm. about it again. Now, at this point, I was now very undecided. And here's where the story has a happy ending. The kid in algebra class was also a really good backstroker. And he was recruited to both schools. And when he came back from his USC visit, he had been shown the time the, the time of his life, the parties, the, the experience, the, the whole. Uh, the, and he came back to me and said, John, your opinion of SC may be a little bit slanted. This is what I did. This is the fun I had. And he opened my eye to the opportunity. So what ended up happening is I ended up choosing USC on scholarship, and Jeff went to UCLA on scholarship. Both schools only had one scholarship for backstroker, so we could never go to the same place, but we went to opposite schools, wow. and, we, and we all did very, very well. Sadly for Jeff, uh, he became more of a water polo player and would have competed in 1980, mm-hmm. except for the boycott that you suffered. So, uh, you know, it, we both found our way. Luckily for me, I got to go to the Olympics that, that were actually uh, where the American team actually went. So, so let's, let's jump then to 1976. Um, you would have been a, a junior when I've, you were tra- between your junior and senior year, correct? That is correct. I had one year left. Um, look, I, I, we, don't, we don't need to uh, belabor your results of 1976. I mean, they're very widely known. Let's like, I mean, four gold medals and a silver. I mean, my heavens. So, I mean, were you impacted suddenly by going from one of the top NC2A swimmers to one of the greatest swimmers in the history of the planet, in the history of the Olympics. How did that affect you? I never thought of it in that way. And you have to understand that in the 1970s, the Olympics were totally amateur. There were no Wheaties endorsements, at least not not prior to your retirement. I I swam without financial reward. Yeah. I wasn't even allowed an agent or a manager. I was literally just my plan was to go through college, use use swimming to get me through college, use college to get a good job and use a job to provide for my family in the future. Wow. So okay, yeah. So this is a very different era than now. Oh, sure. Yeah, very different. I and I do believe that the incentive for swimmers is different and you know how I can tell because swimmers today will go back three and four times. Mm-hmm. In my era, if you made two Olympic teams, you were a rarity. If you made three Olympic teams, you would be the American flag bearer. That was so rare. And that's what happened. Gary Hall was a three-time Olympian, and that made him so, so rare that they made him the flag bearer in Montreal. Father of Gary Hall Jr., who went on to win, I believe, 11. 11. 10 or 11. Yeah, wow. Miles, yeah. Well, there is a genetics component to it, isn't there? (laughs) I suppose. With your permission, I would like to backtrack for just a second. Yeah, of course. In 1974, Mm -hmm. the USA-East German dual meet occurred. And this was a chance for for me as Americans. Where was this? Was this in Concord, Concord, California? Concord, California. Exactly. And this was a chance for me as America's best backstroker at the time to compete against the best backstroker in the world. 
And Roland Mathis, my idol, my hero, the man I, I idolized. Who was East German, by East the way. East German and did not speak a word of English. And part of the East German system. And uh, we called him a Communist Party animal. Mm-hmm. He, was, he, he didn't have fun. He, he, he was loyal to the cause. I later found out that's not necessarily true. But in any case, at the time, he was unapproachable. And he had been unbeaten for seven years. And uh, the swim team coaches came to us, and they explained that East German women, by this time, had blossomed into these remarkable athletes who are so unbeatable in so many areas. Many people suspected it was it was illegitimate, but nonetheless, they were going to win a lot of races. Well, and it's been confirmed that has, they were doping. Since it has been and, confirmed. And, and uh, I was, they were still around when I was swimming, and they, their bodies were transformed by whatever they were doing, which and, and, we know now. In retrospect, I agree and concur. At the time, I tuned it out. Mm. I didn't want to acknowledge that they might be cheating. And therefore so, did, might... so did I, by the way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that, that is the natural, I believe that's the natural uh, default for a competitive athlete. Mm-hmm. You don't want to admit the other person has an unfair advantage. And so you just do what you can. Well, then they do, don't they? Well, if exactly. <laughs> and in fact, that's what psyching out is all about. Yeah. When you try to psych out your opponent, you're trying to get an unfair advantage by making them think that they're not going to win. Anyway, yeah. that, that, no, that's, no, no, no. That's 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 an important that's an important part to competing. It's true, true. I mean, believing I think, in yourself. Yep. And <clears throat> well, so anyway, my point being is that in 1974. I defeated Roland Mathis. I didn't break his records. He was off his game, but he lost to me. And at that point, I felt that now I can perceive myself as a potential gold medalist. In fact, maybe even a favorite to win a gold. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it was a toss-up. But, but now I could allow myself to feel, okay, maybe I have a really good shot at this. And at the time, um, I was primarily known as a backstroker. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Sports Illustrated did a pre-Olympic a feature, a story on me that says if everything goes right, John Neighbor could win three gold medals, 100 back, 200 back in the medley relay. It never dawned on them that I would be swimming a freestyle event in a relay as well. Uh, 200 free, you won a silver medal, correct? I had a good, I had a good freestyle year that year. I had a good freestyle year in the distance races. I had the American record in the 1650 as a high, as a college freshman, but. Um, Nobody thought of me as winning five medals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I, I kind of snuck in under the radar. Mm-hmm. I wasn't the featured uh, – Shirley Babishoff was the big featured athlete on that team. And uh, rightfully so. Rightfully so. So I, I basically I dodged a couple of bullets, and I snuck in under the, under the limelight, and I had a very good Olympics. I will tell you, statistically speaking, my first world record and my last world record – occurred four weeks apart. I started wow. at the Olympic trials, and I ended at the Olympics. I never broke world records outside of that period. So in a four-year period, I hit my zenith at the perfect moment. Yeah. Wow. Now, who says? Had I continued to swim, I might have done better years later. The point being is that I hit it at the right moment, and, and it, had I been born in a different year, my life would be totally different. Had mm-hmm. Tim Shaw's 1974 success occurred in 1976. He might be the guy in the Wheaties box. Right. Wow. Well, um, so you had one more year back at college, right? Mm -hmm. Correct. I had to return. I chose to return to USC Mm -hmm. to fulfill my obligation to the team. 
when I signed my scholarship agreement, I had promised USC I would swim for four years, and they had promised they would school me for four years. And I didn't really have any alternatives. I wasn't, there was no pro swimming. You know, I, 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 I was told if I even competed in the superstars and donated the winnings to charity, I would still lose my NC2A eligibility. And so, Very different than the Missy Franklins and Katie you know Ledecky's. Katie Ledecky's of today, Michael sure. Phelps's, you name it, right? Well, you know Michael Phelps never swam in the NC2A level because he I was. I thought a, he swam for Michigan one year. Am I he, wrong? He attended Michigan. He never mm. competed for Michigan. My point being is that a lot of swimmers, Janet Evans included, swam at Stanford for a couple of years, but then had to give up her amateur status in order to go pro mm-hmm. and. Her, you know, her, her, her Olympic career continued because by that time, amateurism wasn't required. But collegiate amateurism, the NC2A eligibility rules are much more stringent. Mm-hmm. Your collegiate performance is every bit as phenomenal from, a, from just a pure athletic uh, standpoint as your Olympic gold medals. They don't take, hold as much weight in the, the, the world as your NC2A. But, you know, get this. So you, you, you won 10 individual NC2A championships. At the time, swimmers were, were limited to three individual events and possibly three relays at the NC2A championships. So the most – and the prior record was set by Roy, um, Jack Medica and Roy Sari. Roy Sari was a Trojan. But in those years, they, they won nine titles, mm-hmm. but they were only allowed to swim three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, freshmen oh. were not allowed to be on the varsity. So he won three titles mm. in a row, three years in a row, and that was the number nine that was, was my target. Got it. I was allowed to swim four years in a row. So out of 12 races, I had to win – well, I, I won 10. Yeah. I mean, look, there's, there's still – I mean, um, it's, it's a very impressive feat. Um, and, and even – and those of us who competed on an NC2A level with the team, mm-hmm. um, the feat of – four for four, which is four national team championships in four years consecutively mm-hmm. with at USC with your teammates. I mean, well, because we had a great incoming class. My freshman year, I was the best backstroker in the country. Joe Bottom was the best sprinter in the country. Rod Stewart was the best butterflyer in the country. Scott Brown was the best 200 IMer in, in the country. We, we had blue chippers coming out of our ears. And in fact, uh, that entire team went undefeated for four years, as you say, dual mm-hmm. meets, conference mm-hmm. meets, national championships. It's crazy. And, and many of us made the Olympic team and came home with medals. The one race I lost was to a USC teammate. Bruce Furness. Bruce Furness, yeah. exactly. Right. But Joe Bottom won, won a butterfly medal. Uh, Rod Strachan won the 400 IM. Uh, Furness won two golds. Uh, a, lot, a lot of uh, great, great stories. And when you are surrounded by that level of competence – the temperature in the pool goes up a little mm-hmm. bit, and people are willing to race, and they're willing to nudge each other, and, and you, just, you bring out the best in people. My sister was also a student at USC, and she would eat with us at the cafeteria table, and she commented many times how amazing it is to, to, to watch a group of guys who are all committed to the same level of excellence. It was pretty impressive. It, it is impressive. Somebody who has experienced team championships, it's, it's definitely the highlight of, of my career. And, and people will, I mean, look, um, swimming is an individual sport. It truly is an individual sport. But the only time it really becomes a team sport is when you have the NC2A competition where you really, 
vying to try to win a national championships. Wouldn't you agree? I would say that swimming is a team sport with individual events. Mm -hmm. That I could not have done what I did by myself or even with the best coach in the best pool in the world if I didn't have guys in the water with me. And so um, uh, I would clearly agree that when there's a team involved, it's a much better experience. If I were to relive any one swim meet of my life, it might be the dual meet with, uh, with Roland Mathis, but it's more than likely going to be my freshman NC2A swimming championships where we defeated the six-time winning national team of Indiana University that had included Mark, Mark Spitz, Spitz in their, in their mm-hmm. early development. And, and we beat them with a, with a final score of 339 to 338. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. Every event, anybody who scored a single point could take credit for that team yeah. win. Yeah. And it was just remarkable to be such an integral part of, of such a wonderful team. So why did you give it up? Why did I give it up? Because the sport of swimming was always going to come to a close for me my senior year in C2As. Hmm. No, no dreams of, uh, of, of going to 1980, training for another three years? No. If I fantasized at the time, funding my own way, without college scholarship, paying room and board, without living at home with mom and dad, if I was going to get a part-time job and still swim, the best I could, I, I could possibly imagine going to the Olympics four years later and winning maybe three golds and a bronze, and, and somebody was bound to say, oh, that's too bad that you, had, you, know, you, you lost a step. I didn't want that. I, I frankly couldn't imagine doing any better than I did, and I was very content and, frankly, eager to move on to the next chapter in my life. Well, objectively, it's difficult to imagine that you could do a whole heck of a lot better than four golds and one silver at a single Olympic Games. I was very pleased, and you're right. I, 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 oh, no, I understand. Yeah. I, I, I completely understand. So so you, you, you mentioned real uh, briefly, uh, but you, you launched right into a vibrant career. Um, you were you were part of something, which is the Olympics, which is a, which was a, a something that's bigger than all of us. Absolutely. Uh, at the time, going into the national, going into the Olympic Games, all of my coaches said, Don, "John, don't get distracted by the noise and the flags and the hoopla. Just think of it as just another swim meet, and you'll be fine." Mm-hmm. So I went into the Olympics thinking of it as just another swim meet, and I did fine. But afterwards all the noise and the hoopla and the parties Mm -hmm. and the parades and the attention, it made me realize that the Olympics were more than just another swim meet. And that realization was brought home by the lifestyle in the village. I remember vividly going up an elevator with a a short cauliflowered ear wrestler to my left and a little gymnast in front of me and a tall basketball player. And here's a boxer and three guys are speaking languages I've never heard before. And it was a world's fair inside of an Mm -hmm. elevator. Uh, the best in the world at a variety of things right. from a variety of countries. So that experience of being at the dining room table in the, in the college cafeteria, being surrounded by people committed to excellence, was magnified because now in the elevator I've got an example of the same kind of commitment to excellence, but now it's the best in the world from a variety of sports. It mm-hmm. elevated my sights. I, I, I began to see it as, as the world's fair of greatness in a variety of skills. So the significance wasn't the significance of the experience was not lost it lost to you. No, but I'm frankly perhaps I'm glad I wasn't aware of it in advance because it might have intimidated me or it might have taken my eye off the ball instead of focusing on what I needed to do. Now I'm lucky. Swimming usually takes place in the first week of the Olympics, and the Olympics are two weeks long. So I had the second week of the Olympics to go around and experience 
the the emotions, the 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 culture, the food, the sounds, the whole thing. Other events. Had I competed on the last day of the Olympics, I think I would have shut all of that out mm. and ignored it until I was done competing. So uh, it probably worked out for me. And then following my career as a swimmer, I became an Olympic advocate. I'm, a, right. I'm an Olympic fan. I love the movement. I love the ideals. I'm not blind to its shortcomings, but I'm just happy to be a cheerleader for the movement. Uh, well, look, no doubt you, you had a, you've had a very vibrant career, um, you know, broadcaster, um, public speaker, and as you say, an Olympic ambassador. And those of us who have have been somewhat involved within the Olympic movement, you are somebody who is very well, well respected and somebody who has always carried that torch uh, proudly. Thank and, you. And uh, at at your service. Um, I want to go back to something that you said about uh, the coaches telling you that it's just another me, which is, of course, very practical. It's not necessarily true, but it's very practical for right. while you're in it. You must have had some really good mentors uh, during your career. Um, I believe that the power of meeting an Olympian, it's like shaking hands with a chimney sweep. Good luck will rub off on you. Uh -huh. when you When you meet an Olympian who is clearly one of the best three in the country of something, generally speaking, they look and sound like regular folks. It's the ordinariness of the Olympians in their incognito life that is so inspiring because if a guy who's with help of mom and dad can become the best you know, sharpshooter or badminton player or, or Greco-Roman wrestler in the world, then we as ordinary people, anybody as an ordinary person, can find something in which they can be excellent. Mm. And so that, to me, is what's so inspiring about the Olympics. Let's be real. The ability to swim quickly while on your back is a skill with limited value in society at large. <laughs> right? Well, the, 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 yeah, the skill of swimming back and forth in a pool is, is limited value. What, what value is that, really? It's, it, it's exciting perhaps once every four years. Mm -hmm. But if we were to have backstroke races every weekend of the year, we would never sell out an arena. It's just not in and of itself. There's, there's limited value. And, and knowing that, understanding that, put me in a better position to start looking, well, how can I be valuable? What can I do that is of value in society at large? How can I contribute to my community if I'm not going to be a swimmer? And that's what led me to broadcasting and the motivational speaking. Um, so what specifically are some uh, attributes about athletes and the athlete mindset that you take with you and that you personally took with you to become successful as an adult post-retirement? Well, um, the recipe for athletic success is as complicated as the recipe for a really good cake. It's not all butter. It's not all sugar. It's not all flour. Mm. You need a variety of ingredients in the right proportion with a little bit of you know, heat mixed in to create some great success. I believe that everybody loves to win. Olympians hate to lose. Mm. And there's a difference. If you see, there's nothing wrong with the silver medal. I, I am very proud of my silver medal. And frankly, it might be because I didn't think I could win the gold. Had I believed I was capable of winning the gold, the silver medal would have been a disappointment. And that's understandable. I would have hated to have lost the backstroke. 
I mm-hmm. did not mind losing the freestyle. Mm-hmm. Okay, but Olympic champions generally hate to lose, and this drives them in a way that forces them to overcome adversity. It allows them to become innovative and creative, um, and uh, it, it makes the sacrifices necessary to be successful easy to pay. It's not easy to swim 10 miles a day, but it's a lot easier when you know why you're doing it right. and you believe in the why. So the, the willingness to de- delay gratification, mm-hmm. the willingness to endure pain, the willingness to triumph over adversity, those are abilities that guarantee success in the real world where you're a doctor, a lawyer, an insurance salesman, or a teacher. Whatever it is you want to do, the skills you learn as an athlete can transcend and, and transform you to become a gold medalist in life. So, uh, in, in essence, you're saying that athletes, and especially uh, somebody who takes athletics seriously, they just simply grow up differently than other uh, children who might grow up in a more conventional and uh, uh, during their childhood and teen years? I, I don't know if sport builds character or it reveals character, but it does require certain kinds of character in order to be successful. And you develop that character, you think? I believe that sport is a teaching ground, and if you learn Mm -hmm. those lessons, you will be successful. Now, not everybody can win a gold medal in the backstroke. I believe that everybody can find something they can do where they are one of the best in the world. That's the the Mm. joy of the Olympics is because, hey, if I'm seven feet tall, I'm never going to be a gymnast, but I can play basketball. Mm -hmm. If I have fast twitch fibers and no slow twitch fibers, ignore the marathon. Go for the sprints. You can win a gold medal at the Olympic level by standing perfectly still and pulling a trigger at the right time. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. there's something in there for everybody. Anybody can be an Olympic champion in something. If they, if they are lucky enough to be exposed to it at the right age and they have the faith to commit to it and are willing to do all the things and jump all the hurdles that are necessary to eventually become the best. So, I mean, look, the inherent life of, a, of an athlete, especially a world-class athlete, is kind of – it's inherently unbalanced. I mean, you're very, very, very focused on A lot of eggs thing. in one basket. Yeah. Did your swimming career and what you learned from your swimming career helped you kind of get through those mundane and kind of just messy everyday life aspects? Let me think about that. Um, swimming can be mundane, but again, if you know why you're doing things, the mundane are, are opportunities. Uh, I did not, going through college, I did not think I would be a broadcaster motivational speaker. I thought I was going to work in advertising or something like that. Uh, the broadcasting and speaking careers became available in large part due to my swimming success. In, in an equal part, I believe, due to the way I was raised and the importance of being able to communicate clearly. My, my mom was a storyteller. My dad was an efficiency mm-hmm. expert. You put those two together and you start, you know, editing your own words before you speak them. Right. Uh, and, and that probably gave me, I mean, the invitation to be a color commentator led to the play-by-play announcing, which led to the sideline reporting for the Rose Parade for ABC. Um, I'm, I'm very fortunate that those things happened in that sequence. But I'm probably more fortunate that my Olympics were in the amateur era because if they were in the professional era, I might yeah. have been tempted to put all my eggs in that one basket right 
And because they weren't, I was really forced. I chose, but I was forced to, to scatter my resources yeah. to, to be a jack of all trades rather than just the master of one. Um, I've heard you speak about having faith in your future. Um, what do you mean by that? In order to be successful in life, you have to pay the price in advance. When you go to a restaurant, you get dessert before the check arrives. But life is not like that. Life requires you have to pay the price first. I had to do all the workouts. You, you might be able to cram the night before the big midterm, but you can't cram your workouts the week before opening ceremonies. You really have to pay that price. And I believe that knowing that and understanding that will, if you're willing to, to apply that philosophy to life, then all of a sudden it's okay to be a plotter, hmm. to slowly put money into, into savings, put money into your 401k now, live without the fancy uh, sports car, don't you know, uh, have a $100 tip to the guy who opens the door for you, not because he doesn't deserve it, but because it's not wise. And so I've always tried to follow the advice and follow the example of, of the people who I think are wise. Uh, my parents, my dad was the smartest man I ever knew. He lived well beneath his means for, for all his life. He valued education and learning more than possessions. Um, and these are life, life lessons that, that have stuck with me, and I, I try to practice them on a daily basis. So you're, you're talking about your bank account and obviously filling your bank account, but you're, I happen to also know that you, you're also a giver. You give back. Why do you have to give back as well? You personally, I'm not sure. Well, I, I believe everybody should, but but they don't may not realize it. Perhaps uh, the Bible taught me that to whom much is given, much is required. That if you've been blessed, it comes with a price, and you can fight it, you can ignore it, and suffer the consequences. Or you can embrace it. And uh, frankly, my life, remember that kid in, in, as a freshman in high school who had no friends and was sitting on the outside and was changed because of sport? It's, it's as if I had invented a magic pill that cures cancer. I'm not going to keep that to myself. I want to share it. I want everybody who needs to be cured of cancer to have this pill. I want everybody who feels left out or un, un, unachieved or, or unappreciated, I want to... Embrace them and bring them into the fold and show them a way that, not the only way, I think you can become successful by playing a musical instrument or writing a book or being a dramatist on stage. There's ways to contribute to society at large. But I know that the Olympic movement was the way that turned my life around, and I want to tell that to as many people as possible. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, obviously sports changed your life, and anybody who's gone to um, the, uh, the games realizes that 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 moment is truly transformative but now as an adult with many many years i don't even care to count how many years it's been um how do you convey that positive transformative power of of participating in sports to to um to our youngest generations well shortly after my freshman year at nc2a is at usc when we won by that one point Every Trojan alumni club in a two-hour radius invited me to speak to them 
And I started accepting those invitations because I was proud of what we'd accomplished, and I wanted to share my experience, and I thought that they were interested in learning about me. It came to very quickly became apparent that they weren't interested in learning about me. They wanted to know what did I know that would help them be successful. Hmm. And that's what led to the motivational speaking career, that I was able to transform talking about myself into observing what makes excellence happen and sharing those life lessons. And, and that motivational speaking career is, is the closest thing I've found to a live athletic performance. I have to stand in front of an audience. I know that I'm capable of delivering a good speech, but you never know if you will until it's done. And they applaud or stand or whatever. Um, and, and that has given me a great sense of this is value. I'm, I'm providing value because years after they've heard me speak, I still get comments from people who say, you know, I took your, your life lessons to heart, and I'm happy to report the following successes. Um, and that, to me, is the best part, that if I'm able to multiply my success hundredfold, it's a lot easier for me to speak to 100 people than it is for me to swim 100 years. Uh, you know, it reminds me, um, you, you, you mentioned, um, you know, you're capable of giving a good speech, and, but you have to get up there in front of an audience and do it. And, mm-hmm. and I had a, a particular experience where I, we were public speaking together, and, um, and I flubbed up a little bit and and you and i, I remember, have no recollection of this <laughs> yeah. it all it happens doesn't it oh and you referred to that as kissing a frog i of course referred to that as stepping in blank oh. but um look failure is something that we all have to deal with mm-hmm. it's part of trying to achieve big things yeah let your let your reach exceed your grasp Try to grab onto something that you don't know you can get, and, and you risk failure. Mm-hmm. When in doubt, I go back to the facts, mm. not the feelings. It's good to feel good. It feels good when well, you feel good. Well, it's not good to feel bad. It's not good to feel bad. It's painful to feel bad, but sometimes it's important to feel bad. Of course. It's part of feeling good. Well, it's how you get there. You, I mean, it, you feel pain because then it helps you identify a problem. Then you can solve the problem. The pain goes away. You feel better. And it's a, it's a self-rewarding cycle, you know, a perfect loop. And so to, 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 have a, to have a flat tire on the freeway, turning up the radio to drown out the sound of the thumpity thump is not a wise choice. It makes the pain go away, but it doesn't solve the problem. So I think that sport teaches us to pay attention to the problem and solve it. So you think this is something that you learned primarily through sport? I think it might have been possible to learn it outside of sport. I just know that I did learn it through sport. I would say there's some pretty good lessons we can learn through the Olympic movement. For sure. Um, Speaking of the Olympic movement, not talking about the past, but talking about the future, living here in Los Angeles, we have a lot of exciting things coming up. Namely, of course, we have the 2028 Olympic and Paralympic Games coming back to Los Angeles. Um, I'd like you to speak just a little bit about what the games mean to the city and the country and the world. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I'm fortunate in that I have seen it and done it before. I lived in Los Angeles in the 70s when the 1984 Olympics were on their way. And I saw what it did for the city of Los Angeles. Mm. And I saw how positive it was. When the, came, when the games came and went, and the lasting legacy that remained behind. 
At the time, there were some who opposed the 84 Olympics. It's going to be expensive. It's going mm-hmm. to be crowded. It's going to be smoggy. Uh, there's security issues. A lot of naysayers. And I've noticed that there are naysayers before every Olympics that have ever occurred. The Montreal Olympics had naysayers. The Munich Olympics had naysayers. Mm-hmm. The Sydney Olympics had naysayers. The Athens, the London, the Rio de Janeiro had naysayers. People who were expecting it to be a horrible experience. And in many cases, those that are expecting it to be horrible choose to leave. Mm-hmm. And in 1984, all the naysayers were gone. Mm-hmm. And there was no traffic. <laughs> and there was no smog. And there were no security issues. And the, the lasting memories are very pleasant. I was part of the Southern California Committee for the Olympic Games to bring back the Olympics beginning the day after closing ceremonies <laughs> of the Los Angeles Olympics. And L.A. has put forward a legitimate attempt to, to host the Olympics every four years, even the years we, we weren't chosen by America, mm-hmm. even the years that Chicago and New York and other cities were, were preferred. We still said, well, we want to host And the idea that we felt that hosting the Olympics is like hosting an open house party. And, John, I went to your house. You hosted an open house Christmas mm-hmm. party. Mm-hmm. Why would you do it? Did you make a profit? Not that night. No, heck no. <laughs> no, but the relationships, the friendships you built, mm-hmm. the opportunity, it, you cleaned your house. I noticed there wasn't a speck of dust anywhere. You got it's your house. It's always like that, John. You always, <laughs> yeah, exactly right. <laughs> no, that everybody goes through a, a process of getting their house in order mm-hmm. before inviting strangers into their home. Mm-hmm. So Los Angeles got its house in order, and we're planning to do it again. Los Angeles is better suited to benefit because... We don't have to spend a lot of resources on infrastructure. We have four airports. We have all the hotels we need. We have plenty of freeway space. We're going to be building extra subways and train stations. We have the ability to move people, feed people, mm-hmm. entertain people. Mm-hmm. We, we, we will not have to spend a lot of money building athletic facilities right. for the two weeks of the Olympics. And that is the one sad part that many other cities who – who benefit from the open house party, also incur the huge cost of building facilities right. that are only used for those two weeks, and that is a horrible shame. But there's also a heart and soul to the Olympic Games and the Paralympic Games and, of course, the movement itself. The ideals. Yeah. Olympism. Yeah. Tell, tell, me, tell me a little bit about how that uh, means something to our city, our state, our country. Well, uh, the the clearest example I can point to is that in 1984, there was a prior arrangement that prededicated any surplus funds. And because the Olympics generally don't turn a profit, nobody really cared about it until all of a sudden there was a $200 million surplus after the Los Angeles Olympics. 40% of that money went into the Amateur Athletic Foundation, now called the LA84 Mm -hmm. Foundation that was designed and the funds were dedicated into introducing Olympic sport to all of the children in Southern California. Two young girls from Compton could not afford tennis lessons, but they learned how to play tennis and became the Williams sisters. That's just one example of Mm -hmm. what the legacy of an Olympics can be. In order to agree to postpone our hosting of the Olympics from the 19, from the 2024 Games to the 2028 year, the International Olympic Committee has provided us with funding to promote youth sports in Southern California for the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. We are building now 
the Olympic generation that might be winning medals in 2028. Right. And if Olympic life lessons are learned now, all of those mm-hmm. kids, even those that won't be Olympians, will be benefiting our community for years to come. The life lessons provide longer value than the medals won at the Olympics. And those kids will go on to become doctors and lawyers and teachers and, and, and hygienists or whatever, and it'll make Los Angeles a better place. Well, John, clearly to so many people you have, um, you have been a role model. Who um, in your life has been a role model? Uh, <laughs> there, are, there are a few people that, that can relate to, to our lifestyle. Uh, having been the best in the world at age 20, and then you have to go find your way in your post-athletic mm. career. It's hard. Mm-hmm. But clearly, in my life, my role model was Louis Zamperini. Mm. You know the name. You met the man. But I know uh, the, the public will know him as the guy from the movie Unbroken. He was an Olympic runner who had been a juvenile delinquent, competed in the Olympics, didn't win the medal that he might have four years later because the war canceled the games that where he would have won. Mm-hmm. But then he devoted the rest of his life to making a positive difference in society. For a while, he carried uh, uh, resentment toward a Japanese guard who mm-hmm. had treated him poorly during World War II, mm-hmm. and he wanted revenge. A religious conversion gave mm-hmm. him the epiphany that I can forgive these people. Something that the movie left out. The original movie left out completely, mm-hmm. which is a horrible shame. But anyway, he, he, he learned the forgiveness, and then he devoted the rest of his life to pouring his life lessons, the ones he had learned, into other juvenile delinquents. He created the Victory Boys mm-hmm. Camp to teach wayward youth how to get their lives back on path. And he used his Olympic and personal experience as a role model to them. He showed me that even though he was no longer running competitively, he could still be a role model. And he taught me about how important it is to be a good role model, not just to have lots of followers and likes on Facebook, mm-hmm. but rather to build relationships. And the story that touched me the most, I had the privilege of booking him as a speaker on, a, on an ocean cruise line that was traveling across the ocean. And he told his story about how he had been brought into significance mm-hmm. by sport and how his faith had helped him forgive those that had said things against him. And then how he went on to, to minister to young boys in his later years. Right. And during the Q&A session, a guy in the back of the room stands up and says, Louie, I want to tell you, I was one of those juvenile delinquents that went to Victory Boys Camp. Wow. I'm now the chairman of a small company. I employ 48 people. My wife and I have been married for mm. as many years. I want to thank you for the influence you've had on my life. And Louie embarrassed, smiles, <laughs> and says, well, you better sit down now. And another guy stands up and he says, wow. Louie, I too was a Victory Boys Camp boy. Well, I heard this story. And it almost brought me to tears because here's a guy in his now 80s or 90s who is being informed, perhaps for the first time, about the power of his influence over countless years and countless lives. And I said to myself, I want to be that kind of guy mm-hmm. that when I'm in my 90s, people say thank you for the, for the influence you had 40 years ago right. because it made my life so much better. Louis made my life better. I want to pass it on. Wow, fantastic. And and I'd like to point out that you were, you were friends with Louis for many, many years. I, I mean, this isn't just somebody that you knew in passing. This is somebody who you spent a lot of time with. Louis and I were friends for, for 15 years before I learned about his World War II exploits. Wow. 
I learned about it through hearsay from somebody else, that Louis didn't talk about, look what I did, look what I accomplished. He just shared the life lessons and his scriptural learnings and his relationship skills and his self-effacing humor. Um, I will treasure the memory of what his impact has been on my life for years. Fantastic. Well, recently there was an election that resulted in um, yet another leadership position for you within the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell me about that election and and what it was for. Uh, For the first time in history, the U.S. Olympic Committee, now called the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC for short, uh, was has created an avenue by which Olympic alumni, like ourselves, have a voice in who gets to sit on the Olympic Committee board. There were two seats on the U.S. Olympic Committee board that were reserved. They're called at-large seats. Mm -hmm. They don't have to be Olympians. But the voting population are all Olympians. Mm -hmm. And so it turned out that two Olympians were voted. Donna Deverona, a 1960 and 64 Olympic champion, uh, she was elected to the four-year term. Uh, beginning in January, and then I was elected to the two-year term beginning in January. And I suppose I'm eligible to run for a re-election after my first term. They do have a two-term limit at the USOPC board. Why do you think that it is so important then for having more representation by athletes um, on the uh, on the board of the USOPC? Well, uh, the argument was made that uh, the U.S. government mandated this change. The Ted Stevens Amateur Sports Act required 20% of U.S. Olympic Committee committees to be comprised of athletes or recent athletes. And in 2019, the new uh, legislation came through that required that number to grow to 33%. And this mandates or requires more athlete input. Um, I am a strong believer in the athlete's first philosophy, it says that you ought to take the opinion of the athletes. I am not an advocate of athletes-only philosophy. Mm. I do believe that the Olympic movement has stakeholders outside of the athletic realm. You've got coaches, officials, volunteers, sponsors, uh, uh, ticket buyers, parents, uh, the, the list of people who, who, who have a, a legitimate stake in the success of the Olympic movement is pretty big. But I do believe that the athletes... Uh, without the athletes, you don't have the movement. What are your primary issues that you believe you will start working on right away? What are what are the really important things that you really want to address? I did not get elected because I have a particular point of view on a particular issue. Okay. I think I got elected because I have a willingness to listen to all points of view and an openness uh, to hearing dissenting points of view and I hope I have the courage to speak truth to power, and I don't believe that, that every one of my opinions will necessarily carry the day. But I do believe that in the next couple of years, the term of, uh, of my service um, will encounter some very important questions mm-hmm. that need to be answered at the Olympic, Committee, uh, Olympic and Paralympic Committee board level. Primarily is, should we actually send a team to Tokyo? Will the COVID issue be resolved or will the safety issue trump mm-hmm. the competitive issue? Do we actually send a team? Uh, and, and, and do we require every member of the team to be vaccinated? And uh, can we require every member of the team to live inside of a bubble if vaccination is not the option? So these are some real rubber meets the road issues. 
I also believe in the next couple of years, the taking a knee on the award stand. It's called Rule 50. The IOC has a rule that, 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 that allows athletes to speak their mind in the press conference, on their social network, uh, in the village, okay, but they're not allowed to make any political protests of any kind on the award stand or during the opening or closing ceremonies. And the athletes, some athletes, feel that that's restricting their freedom of speech. Other athletes feel that that's protecting the sanctity of the ceremonies. And uh, the U.S. Olympic Committee will be asked to punish athletes who violate Rule 50. And the U.S. Olympic Committee may be reluctant to do so. And uh, that'll be an important issue. Right. Uh, I think that the gender equality issues are coming to the fore. Should a transgender athlete who now identifies as a female but was born as a male, should they be allowed to compete against women? And these are issues that are landing on the Olympic Committee internationally and nationally and will have to be addressed pretty quickly. Universities are canceling Olympic sports because they're non-revenue. And what will the U.S. Olympic Committee do to maintain facilities and training that will be the, the base of the pyramid that produces our Olympic team in the future? How will the Olympic Committee respond when colleges start canceling Olympic sports? These are, these are significant issues. I'm not committed to any one point of view yet because I haven't gone to my first board meeting. I haven't heard both sides of the argument. But I look forward to, to addressing some of these questions because they're very uh, significant. And I'm glad to bring my point of view, the point of view of an Olympic alumni, uh, to the table. This is all super exciting, John. And um, I love the notion that the best and the biggest impact that you might have on the Olympic and Paralympic movement might be yet to come. I hope so. I hope so. I think that for many years, for many decades, I've been satisfied with uh, my lane. Swimmers are good at keeping in their own lane. Mm -hmm. And when I was working as a president of the U.S. Olympic alumni, my lane was worrying about Olympic Day celebrations, Olympic reunions, uh, chapter development, you know, I, just the alumni issue. Now, as a board member, I am required to address some of these bigger, tougher issues. I had my opinions in the past, but I didn't voice them because I wasn't an AAC member. I didn't have a voice in that debate, and so I'm more than happy to let, let those areas manage themselves. Um, I think that with this responsibility is, gonna, is, is inevitably going to bring some criticism as well. I'm going to be attacked for because no opinion is going to satisfy anybody, everybody, mm -hmm. and so I'm going to hurt some feelings. Uh, uh, that's my job, and, and a referee has to make the, the tough calls. Not everybody's going to be happy, and those that disagreed with the call are going to attack them for being blind or stupid, and um, I'm afraid that that's in my future. But that's also leadership. I think so. I, 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 I hope that I have the wisdom and the courage to do the right thing. I'm sure you will. I think that's a good place to leave it off. I'm looking forward to watching your legacy continue. And just fascinating insight, John. And thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. And one promise I, should, I would like to make is that if I come to an, un to an unpopular decision, or even a popular one, I hope that I can convey the rationale to the Olympic alumni, the Olympic and Paralympic alumni in the future. I do intend, I feel a sense of responsibility to make this a two-way communication. I hope to, 
to gather opinions and to articulate the rationale behind them. Well, I look forward to seeing how this all unfolds. We're in very uh, tumultuous times within the Olympic and Paralympic movement, um, and there's a lot of change afoot. Mm -hmm. And um, I know, me personally, I'm happy that you're going to be right there in the epicenter trying to uh, figure out all of these big issues and tackle them. Well, thank you, John. And I, I count on you to provide input as well. You and all of your listeners and all of our Southern California Olympic alumni and I, my door is open, my ears are open, and uh, hopefully my mind is open. You know I will. Thanks. Thanks, John. I'll leave you today with a few of my favorite thought-provoking quotes from Olympians and Paralympians. Mia Hamm, gold medal-winning Team USA soccer player, says this about hard work. I am building a fire, and every day I train, I add more fuel. At just the right moment, I light the match. Serena Williams, the woman many consider to be the greatest tennis player of all time, talks about the inherent meritocracy of sports. It doesn't matter what your background is or where you come from. If you have dreams and goals, that's all that matters. And finally, Spanish Paralympic cyclist Juan Jose Mendez, who's missing his left leg and most of his left arm, has a simple message. Don't tell me you can't. I'm John Moffat, and thank you for joining me today for this episode of Sports Life Balance. If you found my conversation with John Neighbor informative and inspiring, please take a moment to give us your five-star review. Happy 2021, and don't forget to have a great week.